Hello and welcome to Making Waves with me, Rowan Henthorne. And me, Aaron Ibanez. So in this series, we'll be exploring all things ocean. And talking to the movers and shakers, the ocean explorers and the characters that are driven to make a difference in this watery world. So drop in and join us for this six-part series of Stories from the Sea. Was that too friendly? Do I need to be more serious? No, I like the friendliness. Hello and welcome to episode two of Making Waves. And in this episode, it's all about our connections with the sea and nature. I think we all need to connect a little bit more to our natural environment and there's many ways to do that. Um, there's many ways to connect and our guest today, um, Erlen Cooper, is testament to that because he's a musician who connects with the natural world through his music. Yeah, so Erlen's um, from the Orkney Islands and I guess to the people listening on the Isle of Man, it'll be really interesting to hear about how he's inspired by nature and you know how he uses the sea as a muse. And like any good scientist, you've been busy in the field yeah. this week. What have you been up to? <laughs> I actually licked a jellyfish today. Do you want to see a video of me licking a jellyfish? So bizarre. I, well, I, was, I had no intention to do it, but I lost a game of odds on with my brother. Uh, it's almost like desert island behaviour, that. Giant jellyfish on the beach. It was huge. And then I licked it, and I spent like the rest of, like the next 20 minutes like trying to figure out whether my tongue, whether, whether I was imagining that my tongue was like starting to tingle and feel really weird or whether it was. And I was like, can you imagine going to the hospital with this giant tongue and then be like, you know, what's your profession? And you're like, oh, I'm a marine scientist. And they'd be like, well, why were you licking jellyfish? <laughs> and what would your reason be? Would it literally be, oh, for a bet? For a bet, Well, that yeah. wasn't very scientific, was it? Well, um, but I have actually also been doing important stuff for the podcast. I've been researching. Good. What have you learned? I learned something really interesting about whales, actually. A single whale, like a big whale, stores as much carbon within it as, as up to a thousand trees. Wow. To me, that's a, an amazing way to sort of measure nature's value. Mm. Um, what a wonderful currency to measure something in trees. Yeah. yeah. And when you think there's so many human-based solutions that we talk about and they're really important but actually making sure that our natural ecosystems are functioning at their best is incredibly important like you know most great whale species are down at least to one third of what their numbers were before we historically hunted and um and overfished them and pretty much decimated their populations. I think blue whale populations are like 2% of what they once were. Mm -hmm. And when you think of each whale is worth a thousand trees, that's some serious carbon storing potential there in our oceans. And that's, and that's just one, you know, subgroup of species. That's just, you know, great whales, you know, basking sharks probably do this, the, the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really exciting and it makes us feel, it gives you that sense of connection. It makes you feel like it's not just us trying to do it on our own. It's about realising that humans are part of the natural ecosystem and the natural world has mechanisms to help 
regulate climate and regulate the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. And because we've become slightly disconnected and disillusioned with the natural world over the last few hundred years, we've we've we stopped realizing that nature will do a huge amount of this for us. And I think that the idea of that whale is like perfect, most beautiful way of thinking about it. It's almost poetic, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. In keeping with our interviewee, and I guess in in keeping with the theme of today's episode, you've got some sounds of the ocean for us. Yeah, I thought that was a fun topic to explore and research. So first one, keeping with the whale theme, um, southern right whales actually whisper to each other. They whisper. (laughs) And what, what's sort of the purpose of the, the delicate ear chatter? Yeah, so we know that obviously whales can make this really beautiful, loud song that can almost travel the distance of oceans, but scientists have just realised that they actually whisper to each other because um, the mothers and their calves need to stay protected, and part of that is being really quiet. So they go into the coastal area... Um, where waves are crashing on the surface and they go really close to the surface um, and they can talk really quietly and evade any predators. So it's super cool. Do you want to listen to it? Absolutely. It's really interesting that you say that they you know, they know they need to be super quiet. It's like such a self-aware thing because they're obviously some of the biggest creatures in, in yeah, on the planet, aren't they? sentient beings. Um, we've got some whale whispers. <laughs> Super cute, isn't it? <laughs> More grunting than whispers there. But <laughs> <laughs> kind of sounds a bit like my stomach when I haven't eaten. <laughs> but yeah, so I thought that was really cool. And then from the very big to the very small. So a lot of species that lives on, live on coral reefs um, spend a certain amount of their lifetime floating in the open ocean in like a planktonic phase. Um, and that can be like... Um, crustaceans and fish and all sorts of animals Um, and for a long time scientists didn't know how they found their way back to their home reef because reefs are different you know um, and certain reefs are better for certain species Um, and now they've worked out that um, they actually remember the sound of their home reef and they will travel back to that sound so they're completely comforted by where they were sort of born and that's where they where they go to hang out again and Yeah, I guess we're putting about human emotions saying they're comforted, but they're definitely connected to mm. that environment and that that's where they head back to, which is really amazing. Yeah, have a listen. This is the sound of a reef in the weather. Sounds like bacon sizzling or something like that <laughs> I was going to say it sounds a bit like a rainforest yeah that's interesting how they kind of like the two sort of sounds you know mimic each other on land and in sea that yeah. there's so many similarities there and it's really interesting like when you dive on a reef a lot you really notice like how it sounds and feels a lot different at, like dawn and dusk it is like it's like being in a city when everyone's trying to when everyone's waking up and going to work or when everyone's kind of like simmering down for the day um, you really would feel that that kind of feeling when you're on the reef. Obviously, like in an amazing watery 
reefy world and not not in a city but you you kind of get what i mean but this is important isn't it? i think i have read about this it's called acoustic enrichment and it's all to do with basically restoring depleted reefs yeah so scientists now know that um to help reefs regenerate quicker they can play the sound of a healthy reef and it will get more species to come um to it and start rebuilding it quicker um, so it just shows you how important it is, and obviously they have threats from ocean noise and, and that sort of thing. But Genius. And I guess to go from the sort of textures of the reef, because there was all sorts going on in that, in that sound clip, um, we've got one more, which <laughs> is it's OK for the podcast, I suppose, but we're going to have to sort of direct you to the footage because the footage does it justice, really. Much better, yeah. It's a, a video of a seal clapping for the first time it's been you know recorded clapping and um this particular scientist knew they'd been doing it for years but never managed to get it on film and he managed to get it on film and it's um that's that that's it clapping it sounds a lot like a computer a slight error message on the computer (laughs) ignore that we'll hear some clapping gray seals (laughs) It's pretty loud, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Underwater, I imagine it's quite hard to make that sound. Yeah, and they do it um, to scare off. It's like a a display of territory, I imagine, or is it sort of... A bit of bravado. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm the big man. Yeah, look at me. I can clap really loud. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And if you have ever tried to clap underwater, it's really hard, isn't it? It's incredibly hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so those were my sound... bites (laughs) and i guess it's a perfect time now to play our conversation with erlen cooper um orkney musician and composer i'm delighted that he's on our podcast because he's just he's such a lovely guy um so humble so softly spoken um and his music's really really interesting um it's very moving and i hope this conversation just acts as that space for you as the listener to kind of just reflect on your relationship with nature because um, Erland's soundtrack certainly does that. So. Perfect, let's give it a listen. I was talking to my dad this morning and we were talking about feathers. He said, I've got a gannet's feather. Oh, I used to have a whole bunch of gannet's feathers. I was like, really? He said, I found a dead gannet. Um, and he was a teacher. So he picked up the gannet, took it home, chopped its wings off. And as a biology teacher, he, he hung them up so you could see, firstly, this incredible wingspan of this incredible seabird. Secondly, its feathers. And thirdly, you could see its bone structure. And he he kept so he he kept them, kept it preserved. I must have been what like eight or something. It must have been in my brain as just there, you know, and quite quite kind of morbid. Obviously, he must have chopped them off with a pair of pliers or something. Obviously, the bird was he was he was found on the seashore. Who knows how or why it died? But it was a lovely way to teach children, right, about flight. I'm interested in the aspect from an islander to an islander point of view. Mm. And obviously your your soundtracks, Soul and Goose, Soul Scary, they're, 
entrenched in this sense of place. Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder when you're sort of opening this up to people and, you know, you, you always posit the, the opening of a show of trying to gently take people across to the Orkney Islands on a ferry. I mean, do you, mm-hmm. do you, do you get homesick? I mean, is that sort of part of mm-hmm. this this sort of process of, of bringing people to, to Orkney? Is this sort of harnessing mm-hmm. your own and channeling your own homesickness for, for Orkney? Do you know, that's a good question. Um, I mean, firstly, you caught me at a point of reflection, which I think is quite good, because we met during the hedonism of the process, and now here we are at the end, before I move on to the next thing. And it's good to reflect on things, isn't it, and try and unpick, because you don't know whilst you're doing it, you don't have to fully think about it. But what I realised at the very last show, and I said it out loud, to an audience in Newcastle, I said, you know, thank you for, for having us and, and for going on this journey to Orkney. Orkney is, like many islands, a place of rich community, and it's the people that work together on the island that, that, that make it so, so, so self-sufficient. But Orkney can be anything you want it to be. And I think that's what I was trying to say. That's what all I'm trying to do in this music. Whether you go to Orkney or not, whether you go to that place in your head, doesn't really matter. Or whether you go there physically on a boat. I think it's about escaping or being transported to another place. That could be the Isle of Man. That could be the Silly Isles. That could be anywhere. It could be, you know, the Norfolk coast. What I realise I'm doing for me is it's my Orkney at that time. I'm evoking memories, childhood memories, good and bad. But I think what I'm doing is I don't think it's homesickness. I think it's a feeling of trying to be transported to a place for as long as I want to be that brings up all those feelings of childhood memory. Perhaps a moment of innocence, perhaps a moment of where you didn't quite think as much. talk about the spirit of the people and, and the self-sufficiency of the community um, but of course mm. a, a, a big part of the music is of course the natural world I guess as a muse and mm. as an actual player in, in your in your score if you like of Orkney and I mean when did that relationship with the natural world for you begin? Yeah as, as I've said so if you folk just walk in the shore with my folks with my dad and my brothers and my siblings and just, you know, a stone stone from the door and spotting gannets. You don't quite realise it at the time how lucky you are. You're surrounded by tumultuous elements today. And actually, that's pretty amazing, really. You know, it's, it's, it, can, it can be something to you. For me, I realised that and only really realising it lately, I would say, since starting this collection of records, is that nature is the one true reset for me. But taking that further, I think it's the sea in particular, it's the horizon. I mean, I would classify this music as alternative, where others would put it in, in, in a genre. I would call it an ecosystem. There's an ecosystem of music that gives you space to reflect. That 
to some people that type of music allows them to reflect, allows them to release, allows them to think. And for me, that music does as well, but it's the it's actually just being in and around the natural world, the elements. It just does something to me, whether it's primal, whether it's just a reset, whether it's a disconnect from technology. You know, I don't know, it just, but for me, I've noticed that's the one thing that will just sort me out. Coming on to that idea of nature being a reset, harnessing that space for, for other people to be in, your records have got birdsong and wave sound and those kind of field mm. recordings. I mean, was that just like a, a natural inclination as part of the writing process? It was. It, 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 look, for me, I believe in critical distance. And what I mean by that is where you... This romantic view that you, you have to be in the landscape with a studio with panoramic windows writing about the space you have to have that type of environment to write i don't believe that's true for me you have to go to the place i take all my books and i take my camera and i take my digital and my analog field recorder and i just get loads and loads of stuff and then i take it all back to my basement studio in london and you start to edit like a writer would edit, and you get rid of large swathes and chunks. That I, I never bend anything, so I put them in a folder, which I call the orphanage of sounds, <laughs> which eventually they are, they are eventually find a home one day. Yeah, you'd gone out, it almost they seemed to go before daylight in the morning. Uh-huh. What his errand at the shore was, I don't know. But he saw this woman sitting on a rock. And uh, I think he must have suspected she was a seal woman. He watched her and saw her take the seal skin and put it on and swim away. So he was down the next morning again waiting. And she came ashore, as she was a seal came ashore anyhow, and then stripped off the seal skin, and there she was, a, a woman. And up she walked about the beach or what she did, but he managed to slip between her and the sea and get away with the seal skin. When I'm on the London Underground, or I'm rushing around the city running to, to do this, that and the other, if a field recording or a conversation or a story or a bit of local dialect can bring me home with a jolt, like the voice of the curly will do that, then I know that that field recording is absolutely right. It's the essence of my trip, my memory at that time. And so the field recordings are really vital for that because they create a world, they create their own little world. But I think this romantic view of like, oh, you have to have this kind of chalet or shack overlooking a glen to actually write about that space, I think that's nonsense. I think if I had that, I'd be wholly distracted. (laughs) 
one thing that we've sort of touched on this idea of journeying that very much uh, your your records have been on you've, you've gone to Orkney and you've brought them back to the city and I mean do you think that's kind of inherent with general islanders the idea of leaving for perspective then coming back with a new perspective and appreciation and, and everything else I, do you know that's a lovely way of putting it I think you and I are advantaged in that in that we can see things a different way and I think it's these sea change type perspectives if I think about more deeply about the one thing you know it's, it's the, the nature is the one true reset for me but the sea being the ultimate the, what that's providing me is a perspective. So I think, yeah, I think you and I are at an advantage being islanders, or at least, I mean, you, you're still an islander, I'm not. It's a bit like, you know, you've got a little rowing boat, it's like, what do you put on the boat quick, because you've not got long? You take the essentials, you make the essential choices. I think we've got a different sense of perspective than those from the mainland, perhaps. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, but what, I'm re what I really enjoy uh, when I work on my projects is, is the collaboration side. So I work 80% alone and 20% with other people. I think it's really, really important. Seeing those outsiders' point of view of what I, what I see all the time is really, really important. It, 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 make, it changes my perspective on the island. Do you think as well that ratio you've set for yourself, that 20-80... Um, do you think by having quite an overwhelming view of needing collaboration, again, that stems from being an islander to sort of stave off isolation, perhaps? I would say part of that is, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ever the underdog. So for me, uh, I also get to play back ideas to people and see their reactions. Um, so the kind of producer in me gets to feel it a little more. Um, so I think yeah, there's, there's definitely companionship and creativity, but I think it's quite brave to share your work and it, it really makes your decisions, like that boy getting on the boat and knowing exactly what to take and what to leave, you, you, you sharpen your senses, your ability to make decisions. You know, anyone can make a record, but for me, these, these records are now wrapped up in new memories of a journey I went on with these people that I took with me. And that's a lovely thing. Ornithology, I mean, it, it's, it seems to have inspired a lot of these records, um, if not every track. What, <laughs> what is it about the birds for you? Well, look, the, fir the first record, certainly every track was inspired by birds. But let me just, I'll talk you through that how I made that first record. I, I didn't intend to release it. I didn't intend anyone to hear it but myself. And whilst I was making these layers and adding layers upon layers, um, I was thinking about how to name the tracks and whilst I'm whilst I was on like the London Underground and it's really hot and sweaty and increasingly claustrophobic. And I think stress is relative, you know, we all feel stressed in different ways. And I was going through some stuff. Um, 
I was trying to trick my brain. So I was asking my brain, I was thinking, what was the Arcadian word dad used to say the gannet was? Oh yeah, Solon Goose. Solon Goose, cool. I'll name that one Solon Goose. And then what was the former? Oh yeah, Mali. Mali. And then before I know it, like a journey, a 30-minute tube ride vanished. Um, so I had this record where all the tracks were named after birds. And then narrative started to feed into the writing as well. But the follow-up records are other things, other things in local dialect, um, not just birds. Just on that um, aspect of sea, air, and the, the general elemental feel that you, you're sort of pursuing with, with the project, do you think that's, again, coming down to this this islander psyche, do you think that that, that, that is an affinity that every islander has, whether they like it or not? I think it is, yeah. I think it, you're, the weather dictates the terms on an island. George Mackay Brown summed it up really well in the local paper. It wasn't a poem. He said something like the essence of Orton's magic of the deep, marvellous rhythms of sea and air. The light to me was the air, the birds, the sky, the sea, the land. This kind of, these, this collection of words which sounds like a poem is kind of like a roadmap for me. It's all spelled out or a nautical map of exactly what to do. The first record about the air, the second about the sea, and the third about land. But it's more than that. It's about community, myth, mythology, people. I think these are all the elements that make up an island, from the community to the earth to the sky to the light to the sea that surrounds it. I think all islanders have that, no matter where, where that island is. say for yourself that the sea is the ultimate I mean could you explain that a little a little more I think what the sea can do is it can be incredibly dangerous and incredibly calm within minutes and I think that's a good metaphor for life and when you look out at the sea you get a sense of perspective greater than looking out perhaps at a landscape I think and it can as it ebbs and flows, it can kind of it gives thoughts and take thoughts away. So that's what the sea does for me. I mean, the health of the environment, the impacts of this warming climate, it's finally being talked about with like this sense of urgency and, and severity. Um, and I just want to know, as a musician, because you've got this, affini- this affinity to the natural world, you use its elements as, as your muse, um, do you see yourself as a bit of a conservationist at all in this? Let me answer that in a, in a way that I think it's a real danger to have things shoved down your throat which causes a polarised way of thinking, which is absolutely required. But equally, I think good conservation 
comes from good education. And in that, I think, for example, a young child, or we, we would call peedy breeks in Orkney, peedy breeks being small trousers, <laughs> learning about the coastline and learning about puffins and understanding that those bird numbers are reduced by 30%. But learning about them in a way that is interesting to them is much more valuable than telling a child the statistics of the doom and gloom of the environment. Absolutely, it's a, it's a state of emergency. But there's two ways to, to go about it, about kind of informing people of what they can do, what they can they can understand about the environment. But for me, the most important thing is just creating a space where people can reflect and think about their relationship with nature. I think if you can think about your relationship with nature, you'll do a better job of conserving it. And learning about nature, learning about birds, learning about the coastline is a great way to do that, in my view, anyway. Yeah, no, it's it's about exposing people to that tangibility of nature, isn't it? Rather than it being simply a, a documentary or, or something, it's actually being, being there with it. I've gone for a walk uh, in the countryside in England and met four people. Now, that says a lot to me. It may have been the time of the week or whatever, but I think people love the idea of nature. But you actually go for a walk, go outside, and you'll bump into a handful of folk depending on the time of the day. So I think people like to talk about it, but actually go and enjoy it before nature becomes a national park. I hate this feeling that one day to go and experience nature, you have to go to a national park to do that. <laughs> it, it takes the away the idea of of wilderness, doesn't it? If if it's sort of it compartmentalised, yeah. yeah, in boundary fences yeah. and whatever else. It is, but it's it's amazing how many people talk about it. But actually, you go for a wander, you you'll be you'll you'll be surprised at how many folk you actually pop into. Like whenever I see a film of this fishing, I'm 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 there. I'm back home, or I'm I'm thinking big, you know. You've been listening to Making Waves. Click subscribe below so you can follow along on the journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>